Welcome to Lubus Laid Out, the essential podcast for sports medics looking for a fresh insight into the world of sports trauma management. Join me, Chris Lubus, and our owner and managing director, Paul Lubus, along with a host of experts as we tackle the key elements needed to thrive as a sports medic in the ever-changing and high-demanding world of professional sport and exercise. Lubus Laid Out, by Chris and Paul Lubus, powered by Lubus Medical. Hello, we're back again. Thank you for listening to the Lubus Laid Out podcast. This is episode three, Head Injury Management in Sport. I'm Chris Lubus, your host, and I'm joined as always by my supporting cast, our managing director, Paul Lubus. Hi there. We also have the honour of being joined by Lubus Medical Clinical Lead, paramedic, Mr. Jamie Ralph. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Chris. Perhaps just for the listeners, you might want to give yourself a quick introduction. Yeah, so thank you. I'm a paramedic. I've been so for the last 10 years, worked for the, the Welsh Ambulance Service. And for the last five years, I've been teaching trauma management in sport. Five years? Five years of Lubus Medical? Five years, yes, five glorious, years. Glorious, 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 glorious like yeah. I know. <laughs> So today we're going to look at head injury management in sport. So Paul, maybe you could tell us why we thought that that was an appropriate subject matter for this episode this week. Yeah, well, um, head injuries and particularly concussion has been something which has been in the press recently. And head injury actually is the leading cause of death and disability in people aged 1 to 40. So when it is something which uh, needs to be managed correctly and something which uh, is seen a lot in sport. Great. Okay. So there's a couple of questions that we're kind of looking to answer with the episode today. And the first one really is, I suppose, is current head injury management in sport exercise actually good enough when you compare particularly something like cardiac arrest? And also, if it isn't good enough, then how should it be managed if that's the case? So maybe we should have a look at what a head injury is, whether we could define head injury before we, we start looking at whether it's managed correctly. So Paul, maybe you could give us an insight into what, what we mean by head injury. Yeah, the um, National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, which is NICE, will define a head injury as any trauma to the head other than superficial injuries to the face. That would include bleeding in the brain and can pressure of the brain, which is a buildup of pressure following the bleed, skull fractures and concussion. We used to think that concussion was just shaking of the brain without any injury, but more recently it's been shown that concussion is actually micro damage to the brain. The definition of a concussion is a traumatic brain injury induced by biomechanical forces injury from forces shaking the brain either directly or indirectly. Great. Okay. In the last episode, we spoke about cardiac arrest in sport. And I'd imagine there's actually probably a much higher chance of an athlete to suffer a head injury through sport, particularly contact sport, than a cardiac arrest. So why then are we so prepared to deal with something like cardiac arrest versus maybe head injury or, or particularly concussion seems to be something that and the management seems to differ depending on sport and level. So why would that be in comparison to cardiac arrest? It's interesting as to why I, we, we've been teaching the concussion in our courses for over 20 years, and yet it only seems to have hit the press recently when uh, there were the suing in America. So the courses generally, first aid at work, which have been taught for many years, don't include concussion, 
because they were specifically designed for injuries that happen in the workplace. Where uh, and, and I think most of those courses have been adapted and even directly used for sport. So there is a need to, to make sure that uh, when there is a, a course which is teaching the injuries in sport that includes concussion because it is something which uh, does happen regularly. JD, you might be able to shed a bit of light on this. So when you're sort of planning for a cardiac arrest, for example, what sort of things make it perhaps easier for somebody to follow a specific protocol or, or a certain way of doing things, again, in comparison to something like concussion? Well, I think with cardiac arrest, as well as other problems that you may encounter on a sports pitch, such as a, a broken leg or a broken arm, is that the, the diagnosis is far more obvious. For example, the, the cardiac arrest, your, your patient will be unresponsive, they won't be breathing, and then there's a very set procedure into the resuscitation, something that's relatively easy to teach. Whereas with concussion, the, the signs and symptoms are so wide and varied and will differ from individual to individual, it can be quite difficult to detect these changes. Paul, you mentioned earlier regarding the deaths from head injuries in the UK. And I just wanted to add to that, that most patients who die or, or do suffer long-term disabilities from head injuries tend to present with severe symptoms. We're trying to catch those players and individuals that don't display obvious signs and symptoms, which, which can be more difficult to detect than the, than the cardiac arrest. So I think that's, that's the major problem. Yeah. And there's no actual clinical test. There's nothing, there's no test that we can use to say that the person has got concussion. It's something which you have to use the, the protocol and look at the signs and symptoms and decide as a clinician, this is concussion. There's not a blood test or saliva test at the moment, they're talking about maybe bringing that in, in the future from the changes that, that occur with the cells after the concussions occurred. At the moment though, there isn't anything which we can use as, as, a, as a device to, to test somebody. So a definitive diagnosis. Yeah, exactly. And you can go through your assessment of a player and I'm sure that many of the listeners will have had players who they've assessed, they've found that there's no sign of concussion. And yet the players got to the end of the game and turned around and said, look, no, I can't remember anything from that game. I've heard that on a number of occasions. It is very difficult, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be attempting to deal with the issue. Yeah, absolutely. Go back to the comparison of the two with, with CPR training. As I understand, you have an annual training session for, for CPR training as a recommendation. So people are getting regularly trained in what to do if they, if they come across something like a, a a cardiac arrest, there's a set protocol for them to then follow a, a, an algorithm or a, a set way we should manage the situation uh, and, uh, and treatment, which everyday people can give. And as Jamie, you've mentioned that there's a recognition when it happens of this clear recognition of, of somebody who's, you know, in cardiac arrest, who's breathing and of course treatment when it happens. And, and also to add to that, a clear understanding, I guess, as to who you refer to at that point. So if somebody's Stop breathing, call my mind straight away, you know what the procedure is. Does that differ with concussion? So there are guidance on the assessment and management of, of concussion and indeed concussion in, in sport. Going back to the, the NICE guidelines, they do produce a list of signs and symptoms and, and red flags, if you like, to identify if a concussion is potentially taking place. 
indication to refer that person on to uh, hospital. With the, the actual qualified medical staff, it's very difficult to recognize a concussion. If they were trying to identify a fracture, the player is going to say that they have got a fracture. The coaches would be more inclined to say, well, you're not going to carry on. I'm going to push somebody onto the field with a broken leg. And yet the crazy thing is that when somebody has a concussion, often the player doesn't want to leave. They want to carry on. And also the coaches can be a problem because they will push for the player to carry on in that game. This is where the, the, the medic actually has to stand back and have a look at an overview of what's going on and think of this as a game and the, the health of the individual as opposed to the individual who's going to win that particular game. If qualified staff have difficulty identifying concussions and managing it, then if we go down to grassroots and uh, we have the lay person who does a very short course, then they're going to have difficulty, even more difficulty, trying to identify this. You can get confused as to, to what concussion is. So I think that it is important, as you said before, that we do have, as we do in CPR, regular training. But also, as Jamie said, the protocols which are out there, that they're laid out and that people have them to follow. So you can identify that if somebody has a, a signs or symptoms of a concussion, that they should be removed from the, the game. And there's no argument over that. If somebody has any, if, if they're knocked unconscious, if they have blurred vision, double vision, nausea, headache, they have memory loss, etc., that they should be taken out of the game, rested, and not go back to the sport until they've been cleared by a medic. So uh, I think there's a lot that we could do in all sports, particularly not just the higher level, but the lower level, grassroots level, where we have clear guidance to be followed. It should follow the CPR example of everybody being taught, having annual updates, having a protocol to follow, having the tools to, to assess the person, which is just running through the protocols, and then knowing what to do with the person when they seem to have a concussion, which is to refer to medical staff, either at the ground or even at the hospital. I think it's also important as well to, to educate the, the players and parents or families of the players as to why we're doing this as well, because historically, I, I know from playing very low level, uh, very low level sport locally, <laughs> very low, very, 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 very low, low, very low, crazy low, <laughs> that concussion is seen sometimes by the layperson as a temporary issue, whereas now we know that it actually does have quite significant long term effects, and someone who has some symptoms that they may deem as mild and that they can carry on playing don't see the significance in the treatment that you're that you're trying to provide and yeah. winning the game continuing to play the game being seen by a scout not missing out on next week's game and so forth can be seen as more important than dealing with the the mild headache that they may have at the time but not considering the long term effects that that can come with that so i think player education parent education is is an important part of this as well. Yeah, and, I, and, and as I said, the coaches, I, I think it still goes on, but certainly over the years, there's been a lot of the medics who've come back and said that I'm fighting against the coach, trying to get the player off the field. The coach wants them to continue. You're the only person who's really fighting and looking at that person's health as opposed to the, the, the outcome of that individual game. It can be uh, pretty crazy, really. 
And I suppose then in the aftermath of, of injuries, you often get players and managers actually commenting on whether or not somebody was concussed. I've had it a few times, particularly the elite level, where, where perhaps players who are quite influential and their voice to some degree carries more weight than even the medical professionals because of their stature. And, and I suppose giving them education and then explaining to them that perhaps it isn't the best idea for them to be commenting on those sorts of things or, or not misleading people, but perhaps not giving them totally accurate information with all the required background that perhaps the, the medical professionals would have. Yeah, and, and I think that's following our, we have uh, done quite a bit of training more recently, actually, uh, over the recent years to coaches who've attended and players who've attended our courses. They do change their attitude. They understand. They didn't understand fully before the importance I think in the heat of the moment, you've got to be careful, but um, having an understanding of what concussion and head injuries and how serious it can be does help uh, and, and does help the, the medic then who is saying, no, this player can't continue and the, isn't having a backlash for it. Yeah, I think it makes it more difficult as well for the, the healthcare professional who has made that decision to remove a player when the player then recovers within 24 hours or even by the end of the game and then gets told that they made the, the wrong decision in, in yeah, taking them yeah. off. Whereas at that time, there were signs and symptoms of a concussion. Yeah, there shouldn't be any comeback and, and, and there should never be any comeback on the medic who's genuinely made a, a diagnosis in a difficult situation. If the player in doesn't have the concussion, they shouldn't feel pressurised in, in, in that situation. And that's a matter of the team working together and understanding that the medic is doing the best they can for the player and isn't trying to harm the team in any way. So am I right in saying that although certain sports will carry a higher risk of a potential head injury, the actual assessment, the signs and symptoms, all of that really should be consistent regardless of the level or the type of sport that you're potentially dealing with because we're seeing in rugby, you can take somebody off temporary for a head injury assessment, there's substitutions in cricket, um, and yet differences within football and within other sports. Why isn't there just a standard protocol for all sports to follow? That's a, a very good question, isn't it? There are international standards for the identification and what should be the management of concussion in sport. So I think it's maybe more the fact that the governing bodies haven't been adopting or aren't aware, aren't big enough to, to, to it seems to be the bigger organisations seem to be more likely to have adopted these guidelines and the smaller organizations, they haven't always adopted them from my experience anyway. I think it's getting a lot more now. I'm hoping that we've got an influence on it as well uh, in the fact that we're spreading the words as part of our course. But yeah, I think it goes back to the governing bodies need to be taking a lead on it and, and they should be obliged to have a protocol for concussion and head injuries, it's not just concussion, it's other injuries. So, Jamie, you've, you mentioned earlier on about the dangers of people continuing to play following concussion. So, for people who don't understand that, why is it dangerous if somebody's potentially been concussed for them to then carry on playing the, the match? Why, why would they have to come off if you say that they might not be showing signs or symptoms? So there's a, there's a couple of reasons for that, really. So going back to the NICE guidelines that I, that I mentioned earlier, which includes loss of consciousness, reduced level of consciousness, and any sort of amnesia or headache around the, around the incident. They also mention high energy head injuries or a cause of concern for the clinician. So even in the absence of obvious signs and symptoms of concussion, 
if the blow to the head was quite significant, the, the healthcare professional as well within their right to be concerned and, and remove the, the, the player from the, from the field of play. There's evidence to suggest that if somebody does have a concussion and they do carry on playing, they are at a greater risk of picking up a different type of injury. So their reactions may not be as good as they were prior to that injury. And in elite level sports, the, the differences in their reaction times can mean the difference between getting an injury and not getting an injury. And there is there's far more incidence of injuries to, to hamstrings, to joints, when a player is playing on with a, with a concussion. More seriously than that, if somebody has a concussion and they receive another blow to the head, that gives a higher chance of having a more significant head injury, such as intracranial bleeding, which can be fatal. And I think that people just need to be aware as well of the, of the fact that if you have an intracranial bleed, as you mentioned, and it's affecting an artery in the brain, then you tend to collapse and drop your level of consciousness and deteriorate very quickly. This is possible also that you could have a slow bleed, maybe more likely from a vein, and that can take a day, two days to show. And there have been a number of cases of people going home with the thought that they've got concussion when actually they've got a, a slow bleed in the brain and uh, unfortunately they have died. That's why it's also important that following a concussion that the player is uh, assessed regularly and has the information that they should go to a medical professional if they deteriorate in the, uh, the time after that concussion. Okay, well, what about anything uh, either of you as, as paramedics either within SWORD or, or just within the ambulance service, perhaps, for any particularly difficult or strange experiences when dealing with head injuries that might help the, the listeners to understand that it isn't, we've already established that it isn't straightforward to deal with head injuries, but what sort of things have you, even at the sort of highest level of immediate trauma, have to deal with? The difficult ones are where the patient or the patient's family are not on board with your diagnosis. And what becomes more difficult then is when you've got alcohol or drug involvement that can cause signs and symptoms of head injuries. And the difficulty with dealing with head injuries, specifically in sport, is what we mentioned earlier, where you've not got buy-in from the, the player or the coach. You can see that there's, there's difficulty. You can see that they're clearly concussed because they're showing certain signs and symptoms, but they're not willing to go on and be referred to, to hospital for further assessment. I've had one player who was playing rugby. He had a blow to the head and was sat down reciting poetry <laughs> after the, um, <laughs> the blow to the head, which was, it wasn't very cool. A little boy who was just crying. And that's another, one of the signs that the, the changes in behavioral changes. And this child was crying. I said, why are you crying? I don't know. So another thing which you, you, you see quite a lot is, and it's not mentioned a lot, is memory loss. But because of memory loss, people will repeat the same thing and you have them uh, saying the same thing over and over again. And for the first sort of five minutes or so, it's quite amusing. But uh, when they're doing it for half an hour and, and uh, an hour, then it does drive you a bit crazy. So uh, yeah, there, there are uh, a number of different ways that, that, that people do show their concussions, you're getting aggressive and, uh, and even punching out. You have to be quite careful. Yeah, absolutely. So for some of the, the in fact, for the, I would imagine the majority of, of people listening to this, they don't necessarily have 
the support of, a, of an elite medical team, be like where we're often assuming that as a, as a physio or as a member of the, the support medical team, that you've got a player team helping you make these decisions. But as we move down into grassroots, where perhaps these sorts of things are, are arguably more likely to happen, you're actually probably going to have less support. And in fact, the whole onus is going to be on you as the first aider or the, or the coach or the physio or the volunteer who, who happens to be providing the first aid cover for that day. So maybe we could just finish off with some kind of uh, rounding up the sort of the, the tips and things that people really, the main key facts and things that people could take from, from the session today as to what they should do. Maybe just again, going through the signs and the symptoms that we should be looking for of percussion and severe head injuries. And also what specifically at, at all levels, people who are going to be in these situations and the other people listening today could, could do in order to try and make the management of head injuries better and considerably more standardized. Yeah, I think that we, we have covered it already. And I think the most important thing is that people get trained in the management and recognition of concussion, that particularly at the lower levels that we have the availability of courses to teach the signs and symptoms. And that isn't just the medical staff, but we also teach the coaches, the parents, the volunteers as to how to recognize it. And then if you have that going through your club, the, the fact that you're there and, and everybody's been taught to say that we're trying to care for the players. I think it's more appreciated when it comes to the stage where you need to remove somebody from the field. So training for, for, for the, definitely for, obviously for the medical staff, training for the coaches, the parents and others around is, is really important and planning so that you know, if there is a concussion, do we have somewhere to take that person to a quiet area where they can be assessed? and to see whether that concussion settles down or continues, that they know who to refer to, which would normally be, there may be a club doctor, but at lower levels, more likely that they would have to be referred to A&E. If anybody's got signs and symptoms of concussion, they need to go to a qualified medic to assess that. We want to make sure there's nothing more serious going on. Also, there needs to be the protocol for return to play that they follow their organization's return to play protocol and that they don't rush to get people back into sport. It should all be laid out as a, a club protocol and policy. And then hopefully everybody's working together for it. Which should be universal. Yes. I, th I think across all. Yes. Yeah. I don't know of any, any organization which is universal across sport, exercise, performance, all the people that we teach. There isn't really any one governing body for everything. They all take their guidance from the sports concussion and assessment tool, the, the SCAT-5. They take their guidance from there, but they all, they all do differ slightly, don't they, with their protocols? Yeah. So there's a lot that can be done. And I think the, the majority of that does come around education and understanding of the subject and appreciating that concussion is a serious situation which can continue even later on in, into life and it can be a problem which can cause, as we've seen, dementia and other issues way beyond that, that injury. So what are the key sorts of signs and symptoms that we should be training people to look out for when it comes to concussion? 
To recognize uh, concussion, we are looking at any loss of consciousness, even briefly. That's, uh, that's one thing that's missed sometimes, is that someone loses consciousness for three or four seconds. That's enough to, to be suspicious of a concussion. Any nausea, vomiting, and steadiness on their, on their feet, abnormalities while they're walking, slow reactions. They may complain of a, a headache, dizziness. They might complain of feeling in a fog. Inappropriate emotions, I think Paul's touched on that earlier with the, with the lad that was crying or reciting poetry. Irritability, anxiety, slow reaction times, any amnesia surrounding the events, if they can't remember the, the events leading to it or what's gone on, what's gone afterwards. Any sort of hint of confusion, if they've got some poor attention and, and concentration, if they're drowsy as well. A couple of other things to, to look out for as well as any sort of seizure episodes surrounding the event. And when you assess them, if their level of consciousness is anything but normal, that should be indicative of a concussion and needs further follow-up. Yes, I mean, really, just off the back of that, anything seems even slightly abnormal following a blow to the head or a head or a semen head injury really should be at least removed to be assessed and arguably there's probably an argument to say remove particularly at the lower levels if in any doubt at all. Absolutely. If if in doubt, sit them out. That's a sort of the tagline, isn't it, that gets banded yeah. around. Yeah. And I, I happen to agree with that. Yeah, totally. It's not worth not worth taking the risk. No, absolutely. Great. Well, I, I firstly would like to thank Jamie for uh, for joining us for the episode. Thank you, Jamie. Well, thanks for having me. No <laughs> uh, we hope you've enjoyed the episode. That is the end of the day. So if you are interested in learning more about concussion and head injuries, it's something which we which we do go into a lot of detail in from basic first aid level right the way through to our more elite sports trauma management training. Look out for further episodes because I'm sure this is something which we'll come back to later on in further episodes of the series and in future, possibly even running specific training, uh, online training and person training or, or health injuries itself. So that's goodbye for us today. Goodbye to you, Paul. Goodbye. Bye, Jim. Goodbye. Goodbye from me. And we hope you've enjoyed the episode. Tune in next time. Bye now. Thanks for listening to Lubus Laid Out. We hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you want more information or have any questions about anything discussed on the episode, or if you want to book one of our courses or services, you can find us on social media via Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The links will all be available in the show notes below. You can also email us directly at info at We hope to speak with you soon.